Get ready to laugh out loud at the Tribeca Festival, June 5th to June 16th in NYC. Experience hilarious talks, comedy specials, and feel-good films with your fan-favorite comedians like Hannah Einbinder, Judd Apatow, Neil Patrick Harris, Teg Nataro, and more. You have to be there. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. Did you know the Tribeca Festival showcases more than just film and TV? Tribeca's audio storytelling program, sponsored by Audible, is happening June 9th to June 13th in NYC. It includes premieres of new indie podcasts, plus exclusive live tapings of popular podcasts like Slow Burn, Criminal with special guest Melissa McCarthy, and Vibe Check with special guest Lena Waithe. Don't miss it. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. I don't know if Trump himself had an ideology. For the most part, his presidency is is largely a conventional Bush-era, Romney-Ryan-type Republican presidency in terms of policy with a bit more extreme provocations and worse uh, in terms of rhetoric. Hello and welcome to the Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. So back when Donald Trump was running in the Republican primary in 2015 and 2016, and of course in the general, there was this effort to identify the thing that he represented, right? Most politicians, they represent not just themselves, but an ideology, a party. Trump clearly didn't represent his party's establishment. He was running against it, but but an ideology maybe, Trumpism. One of the people who's trying to define that was this guy, Julius Crane, who was back then in finance, but he started a blog called, I think it was called the Blog of American Greatness um, or the Journal of American Greatness. And he was, along with contributors who he had recruited, trying to pull out of what Trump said, a bigger populist right ideology, something that could be understood as a coherent challenge to the neoliberal orthodoxy or consensus that preceded it. Um, and, and Crane was, I think you would call him an ideologist. He was trying to build the ideology that Trump was uh, articulating. And he, shortly after the election, began a journal called American Affairs, which got a lot of attention because it was going to be like the Trump journal, right? Trump didn't represent traditional conservatism. The traditional journals didn't represent him. So he needed something new. Over the past couple of years, Crane eventually broke with Donald Trump because Trump did not end up uh, acting in accordance with Trumpism. And American Affairs has become an interesting journal trying to chart uh, a somewhat populist path. It publishes people, I would say mostly on the right, but, but certainly some on the left as well. And Crane himself has become an interesting both critic of what Trump has become, but also advocate of what Trump almost was or seemed for a moment like he was. And so I thought this would be an interesting conversation to have right now, a look at the ways in which at least some of the people who believed in him in 2016 feel Donald Trump ended up betraying Trumpism or simply never caring about it at all. But before we get into the show, one thing, sorry, it's COVID time. Uh, Our main recording worked for about 17 minutes. And then the... uh, on Crane's side, it crapped out. And so we're using Zoom audio for the back half or back two-thirds of the conversation. I'm sorry. It is somewhat worse audio quality. It's still clear. You can still hear him. It's how I heard him. But um, it was nice when we could do this in studios and, and we're making do. So I apologize for that. As always, my email is EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Here's Julius Crane. Julius Crane, welcome to the show. 
Thanks very much for having me. So let's start here. What is the difference between Donald Trump's presidency and the ideology that you and others were trying to articulate as Trumpism? Well, I don't know if Trump himself had an ideology. He certainly had a critique of what is often called neoliberalism, what might be even more precisely defined as the bipartisan policy consensus that dominated for, uh, since the end of the Cold War, at least on economic issues and things like that, uh, as well as foreign policy. But by and large, I don't know that he ever really had a positive ideology for his campaign in 2016. And since he's become president, I would say that with a few um, slight exceptions around trade, for the most part, his presidency is is largely uh, a conventional Bush-era, Romney-Ryan-type Republican presidency in terms of policy, uh, with a bit more extreme provocations and worse uh, in terms of rhetoric. But but you and others were, and I think you were very prominent in this, in looking at what Trump was saying in 2016 and reading into it an ideology, reading into it a positive agenda, and also trying to actually create institutions that would flesh that agenda out. So what could that agenda have been? What does platonic Trumpism look like or what would it have looked like? Well, I certainly think the critique of the post-Cold War policy consensus was valid. I think if we look back uh, over the past 30 years, in retrospect, it looks like most of the big policy decisions uh, we got wrong, from financial deregulation to extreme trade liberalization to a lot of the foreign policy adventurism to curtailing or eliminating parts of the welfare state. I think in retrospect, um, those are mistakes and they, they didn't pan out as planned. Then the question is, what do you actually do to replace that? For the past four years or so, uh, my quarterly journal, American Affairs, has been publishing articles on you know all aspects of those issues. And I certainly think there is a po- positive agenda anchored around reindustrialization um, as well as uh, strengthening state capacity uh, both in terms of improving productive and, and technological abilities of domestic firms, as well as um, shoring up the labor market, uh, especially the lower ends of the labor market. But those things, I think it's fair to say at this point, again, with the uh, exception of some of the trade stuff vis-a-vis China, that the administration uh, was never particularly interested in pursuing um, and was unable to do so in any systematic way. So there's a desire to call this Trumpism because Trump won on the critique and he won. But I think, you know, whether Trump uh, exits the scene in a few few weeks or a few years, there, there probably won't be much of a positive agenda there that's distinctive. And, and going forward, we're probably looking more at like a what you might call a, a post-Trump agenda um, that, that still needs to be uh, built. I think the intellectual contours are coming together, um, but the political implementation of that uh, is still at a very early stage. So, sometimes I'll, I'll talk to folks who found Trump appealing in, in 2016. And what I hear is what sounds to me like a critique of what I think you properly call the bipartisan policy consensus from the left, um, a critique of foreign adventurism, a critique of the Iraq war, the, the Libya intervention, a critique of trade policy, a critique of lack of industrial policy, a critique of rolling back, as you said, the welfare state too much. 
Donald Trump was at best, I would say, inconsistent in this critique. He appeared to support the Iraq war at the time that it was actually launched. Um, he would talk both as a dove sometimes and an extreme hawk others. So why wasn't your journal a Bernie Sanders stan operation? What what would what would have attracted you to, to Trump or a right-wing populist reformer as opposed to uh, a left-wing democratic socialist reformer? What, what did you think Bernie Sanders wasn't picking up in that in that agenda? Well, I should say, um, first of all, that the journal didn't actually start publishing until after uh, its, its first issue was February 2017. So at that point, Trump was president. But the blog started earlier, if I'm not wrong. The blog started in the Republican primaries, and um, right. we can go through the whole history, but basically all of our personal backgrounds were Republican, and we never thought the blog would become what it did. Uh, it became phenomenally popular unexpectedly and then led to the journal almost totally by accident. So there, there were a lot of just idiosyncratic, idiosyncratic personal elements there as to why it wasn't, you know, uh, a sort of left wing, so to speak, project. That said, one of the things that I'm actually happiest about and I find most gratifying with American affairs is that, you know, if you look at our archives, if you look at our readership, both our readers and our authors, it's about 50-50 people with left left-wing backgrounds and right right-wing backgrounds. So we publish people uh from all over the map and I think that's pretty rare actually among American publications today. And what I think you see is that there's a, at least an intellectual ability among many people to kind of recognize that a lot of these issues don't cut across the old partisan orthodoxies and divides, and that actually there's a lot of internal contradictions within both parties, and a lot of these debates just don't make sense in terms of the old kind of 90s ideological categories. So we certainly have no issue publishing left-wing people and engaging uh, in those critiques. I just think, you know, the larger issue is that right, left, as they're conventionally defined, are actually inadequate to meet the, the real issues at stake here. But but so the reason I'm pressing on this is that one of the things I want to draw out in this conversation that I've become very interested in is there's a way of looking at the past couple of years, which is that Donald Trump failed Trumpism, that he took over the Republican Party from the outside as this populist reformer potentially, but in office just didn't care. He didn't put people like that in key positions. He wasn't himself interested in pushing the Republican Party. He didn't try to be a leader of congressional Republicans. He didn't launch the wars inside the party that would have needed to be launched. And that somebody else can pick up on what was popular about him and then fashion that into much more of a systematic agenda in the future. And then there's another way of looking at it which is that the Republican Party is not going to be a plausible home for the thing that people want to call Trumpism, that because of who supports it, because of where it gets money from, because of what the congressional party looks like, that those ideas can't really take root there. And so one reason I ask about the Bernie Sanders-Trump difference is when I look at the American affairs agenda now, um, and you guys published a policy agenda for the, for the journal, and includes things like the possibility of single-payer single health care um, and a much bigger industrial policy. And one of the big ideas that the journal has been pushing is a very big child uh, allowance. And these things all have a home on the on the left. Um, they may be more liberal than a lot of Democrats are right now, but but it's in it's in that conversation where I don't really see it on the right. So I'm not I'm not trying to push a hypocrisy argument here. What I'm what I what I like to sort of hear the reflection on is. After watching what happened as Trump and the Republicans merged, do you think the Republican Party is a vehicle for this kind of populism, even potentially? Uh, I don't know. 
I don't know. I, I don't think anybody knows. Uh, there are certainly the main forces among the donors, among the kind of conventional think tank people, you know, the people that have dominated the party intellectually for the last three decades. Uh, there's basically zero interest in this kind of program. On the other hand, you do have a number of Republican senators everyone from Rubio to Hawley to Senator Cotton from time to time, and a few other, call them unusual suspects even, that are increasingly interested in parts of these ideas, at least. And there's also a, a, a strange, or maybe not so strange, really, but a strong generational divide where, you know, younger people in the party, uh, I think, are very enthusiastic about this new direction, whereas older people are not. Uh, the bigger question for me is whether this stuff can actually find a home in either party, because at this point, the Democratic Party, their major constituencies tend to be actually the, the biggest players on Wall Street, the largest of the tech oligarchs and Silicon Valley, the wealthiest zip codes, and so on. And there's going to be a lot of resistance there as well. Uh, and the, the part of it that, you know, I think makes it plausible for some Republicans to be interested in these issues is simply that the Republican voter base um, is no longer the Republican voter base that many Republican Republican politicians think it is or want it to be. They actually really want to be uh, representing wealthy elite America, and they simply no longer are. So you have kind of an unstoppable force in uh, actual voter coalition uh, composition, you know, meeting the immovable object of, of large party donors and conventional party figures on the Republican side. I'm not sure where exactly that ends up. You also have some less positive elements on the Democratic Party side as well. But personally, my view on political change, political reality in America is that you know, this, this country has always secretly been a one-party state. You had FDR's New Deal, and you had New Deal Republicans like Eisenhower. And then you had the Reagan Revolution, and then that was largely consolidated by the Clintons. And now we're in a sort of interregnum period, and I'm not sure where it ends up. But my guess is that if we are going to be capable of larger, more ambitious policy changes, uh, it's going to be because there's a, a deeper policy consensus that runs through aspects of both parties. So uh, an argument you've made is that the coalitions and the ideological compromises that now define both parties are, are wrong. And you've used the term state here a couple of times, but in, in this big piece here, the three fusions, you argue that the problem for particularly the right, but also to some degree the left, is they refuse to accept the centrality of the state. Can you talk a bit about what you mean by that? Yeah, that's definitely my view. Uh, and we've really sort of taken the state and the legitimacy of the American state for granted and have refused to kind of think about, you know, what actually makes us part of this thing we call the state, what gives it the authority to act so that, that it's, uh, you know, voluntarily accepted, and what would, what, what does it actually take uh, to make a state legitimate in the eyes of its citizens? I think that has sort of been forgotten over the last several decades when it's when it was assumed that kind of individual interests acting through markets would sort of automatically converge and that you didn't actually need a conscious pursuit of a common good and a clear definition of political goals animated by a central state. Uh, and we've constructed a myth, particularly in America, that this is sort of an un-American thing 
and you know it's it's all about the rugged individual pioneer or whatever. But in reality, I think uh, the, the the high points of American history were were mostly our, our most status periods. Whether whether it was the Constitution versus the Articles of Confederation, uh, Lincoln and the uh, strong consolidation of federal power in the Civil War, the New Deal and World War II which was, I think, easily the most status period in U.S. history, coinciding with what is usually considered perhaps somewhat exaggeratedly, but nevertheless significantly, uh, the kind of golden age of, you know, Truman's America and so on. And so I think there is a strong uh, state tradition in the U.S. that is quite essential, uh, not only to, you know, a, a sense of, of common citizenship, but also to the creation of better policy. So I, I know that, as you said earlier, the journal publishes some people on the left and that you have a critique of both parties, but but you and the journal are thought of as trying to define a, a populist right. You speak at conferences that are about redefining the right. You're a player in debates about the sort of crack up on the right. So what in this is a populist right and how does it how is it differentiated from a populist left? Uh, often when I think about that or when I watch it playing out in Europe, it looks like the populism holds steady and the populist right means it's only for white people. Um, I think that's not how you want it understood. So, so what is the distinction here? Be, what makes you on the right as opposed to the people who see themselves on the populist left? Right. Well, I always resist labeling myself, but certainly as you, as you point out, most, most people do see, see a lot of this as, as, as more right than left. And I think, you know, in, in 2020 America, it is, uh, the emphasis on the national state. Uh, in particular, as being essential for whether it's constructing a more effective welfare state or an industrial policy and reindustrialization or uh, anything like that. Uh, and I think the contemporary left today is very reluctant to address those issues. And, and I, I think that actually is a mistake and it ends up, uh, they end up contradicting themselves and it makes it very difficult to pursue the program that they think uh, that they would like to. Whereas, well, we are certainly opposed to, you know, racist or ethnic versions of citizenship. Uh, we nevertheless think that you cannot ignore these questions. And perhaps an older left, I, I don't think would have either. And, and even an older Marxist left would not have been, uh, as sort of hesitant and reticent on so-called national questions uh, as we see today. But I, I think we have to actually confront them. I would also say that you know, for us, it's not so much a question of a kind of top down. This is what the nation is. This is what you have to be or believe to be part of it. But it's simply kind of grappling with the reality. I think that the conventional views of American patriotism, conventional views of American nationhood, whatever that is, are, I don't know if discredited is the right word, but, but certainly no longer as widely adopted cannot be taken for granted. And, and we're sort of investigating and exploring, you know, how can you have citizenship in the absence of this kind of old sense of cohesion um, that, that I think used to prevail? And, and sort of what do we do about that? We, we don't simply take that as a, as a good thing that these seemingly old collective feelings have disappeared. Um, we sort of are trying to figure out how we can have uh, collective action with a, with a real collective that, that is actually functional and workable uh, in 2020. Be, be a bit more specific on, on these questions. What are the national or nationalist questions you find the left either reticent or self-contradictory in its attempt to answer? 
Well, I think a lot of the left has a hard time with, say, immigration issues. There's usually a lot of saying, well, I'm not, I'm not for open borders, but any type of immigration enforcement, um, they're very, very reticent to accept um, or even discuss. Similarly with questions of, you know, is patriotism or nationalism a, a kind of healthy feeling? Is there a space for that? Those, I would say, are the big issues. And are you, when you say the left here, do you mean the Democratic Party or do you mean something further to its left, like Jacobin? Because in my experience, like the Democratic Party wants, a, is fine with immigration in for, like their their endless deal it, that they want to make is a path to citizenship for much stronger border enforcement. Yeah, I would say, you know, I was referring mainly to, you know, kind of the intellectual vanguard of the party, if you will. I wouldn't put it on any one publication, but but kind of the the, the more progressive, uh, more academic ecosystem. And so would it be fair to, to put it this way, that the way you see the issue on, on the kind of broad left is that the Democratic Party might be more comfortable with some of the nationalist questions, but it is too neoliberal for your taste, while the kind of rising, let's call it democratic socialist left is more comfortable with the, the populism, the, the need to really take the state seriously, but is um, caught in some very difficult questions about how globalist and how universalist it actually wants to be. Is that, is that your understanding of the, of the split there? Yes, as well as how individualist. And the other important divide, I, you know, since you mentioned it, I mean, on, on the right, going back to some of our earlier discussion, you know, I think the populist part of the right is probably more correct with respect to its critique of the old consensus. Um, but simply because it's right about that doesn't mean that it can ignore all questions of expertise, ignore all serious policy formation, which is what it's been doing. Meanwhile, the kind of establishment right is more correct in terms of you still need to you know, run the government and, and have serious institutions, uh, but has refused to kind of grapple with the mistakes it made uh, over the last 30 years. Let me ask you about that, that, that institutional question on the right. When I look at the Trump administration, there are a lot of pieces of it I find surprising, but I think none more so than the past, let's call it six months, wherein the political, electoral, and even ideological incentives seemed very well aligned to just govern, like try to have a really strong response on coronavirus, which can include closing borders, which Donald Trump likes to do and, and, and brags about doing. But you'd also have a plan to do something about the coronavirus itself. Um, you'd want to spend a lot of money. Trump, when he just talks, when he goes on the Rush Limbaugh show, says that he wants a, a stimulus bill much bigger than what the Democrats even want. But each time the Democrats make a big offer, um, they reject it. He oscillates between pulling his representatives from the negotiations and then jumping back into them. Uh, the Republicans in Congress have moved towards a stance of doing very little or doing nothing. I don't understand how a party that theoretically wants to be reelected in November is acting this way in these circumstances. It seems suicidal. Why do you think that the policymaking structure here has proven so feckless or atrophied or whatever you want to call it? Well, we're, we're in the same boat in that we find it utterly mysterious and incomprehensible. But let me give you two of my uh, hypotheses for, for how this can happen. The first is basically that the Republican Party um, has become, broadly speaking, a political philosophy cult. If you want to be a 
an intellectual on the Republican Party. You study political theory and you write essays about Burke and Tocqueville. And maybe if you're more libertarian, Hayek or something like that. But broadly speaking, you live in the world of theory. You don't spend a lot of time thinking about how Wall Street actually works or how America's intellectual property regime contributes to certain outcomes in Silicon Valley VC or whatever. You just don't get involved in these detailed practical questions, much less, for example, questions such as how would you actually coordinate industry to produce medical supplies during a pandemic? The cupboard is very dry when it comes to people who can do that, that sort of thing on the right. That's explanation one. Explanation two is that Trump just has a a very different metric for success than anyone. He seems to see the high point of, of everything to be about sort of television ratings and creating a media controversy and having everyone talking about him, whether it's good or bad. And even if you go back earlier in the pandemic, you know, early on, he actually did. He brought in a bunch of CEOs or whatever. Uh, And they had a conference that was like, we're going to have all this testing. You can go to the Walmart parking lot, whatever, which, um, you know, leave aside the merits of all that. But it never even happened. And it seems like to a lot of them, you know, having it in the media, doing the show for the media is actually the end. It's not the means to the end. Um, But sort of living the fantasy uh, is, is the only the only way you keep score. And, you know, again, That sounds extremely weird. It doesn't make any sense. It's not how I would approach the issue. But if you just look at it, it seems that that's actually what they care about most. And I have seen actually in my conversations with a few other European populists broadly defined that, you know, ask them a question about a specific policy issue. They don't have much interest in it. But if they if they see an opportunity to uh, excite a lot of controversy on on Twitter or in the media, then then their eyes light up and they're just very excited about it. So I think we might just have to accept that for some people. Um, Wait, but but that's very interesting. Dig into that for a minute. Why do you think that the kinds of politicians and political figures who become associated with right wing populism seem so interested in, in in media coverage? I mean, is that expressing something more deep and, and worthy of reflection on it? Yeah. So I have thought about this pure speculation, of course, but it feels to me like there were just a lot of unaddressed issues in the United States, in the West. Like I said, 30 years of the post-Cold War consensus, a lot of problems. And all the incentives of the system were to ignore them, stick to the old script, talk about the, the usual issues from the 90s, keep fighting the, the same culture war from 1968 even. And it almost it's almost like it took some kind of, for lack of a better word, sociopath, someone who just ignored all of, all of the social cues to, to bring these issues up and bring this, this critique into the foreground. And, and I think there actually was value to that. But of course, then once you actually win office, you have to govern. And that sort of thing is, is now the, the opposite of what you need. Desert Clan Show will return after a quick message from our sponsors. When you gave your gloss on the right earlier, something you said was that the right has its elite ranks, the sort of political philosophy cult world, um, the money men, the congressional Republicans who who want to serve rich interests, and then they have this voting uh, base constituency that is very different and has become more populist and, and and needs different policies. And so you might expect that when governing, then they'd be they'd be appealing to them. And, and yet, when you look at it, Trump 
lost you along the way. Um, you wrote a, a piece breaking with him, I believe, is in 2017 or 2018 around Charlottesville. Uh, but his approval ratings remain incredibly high among base Republicans. Um, so why do you think they're happy with him? What What is it that they're getting out of this deal? Well, I mean, you know, according to the statistics, you know, prior to uh, coronavirus, um, you know, you, you were actually getting some larger increases than we've seen in a while for for the lower quadrants of workers. And one can debate how much Trump had to do with that or not, but it was happening. And I, I think that helped. Uh, I, I think also that the Democrats are frankly just not doing and have not done very much to appeal to these people. And the predominance of the culture war, while it's not an issue, uh, it's, it's not an issue that I am focused on, but, uh, you know, that tends to be more polarizing than a lot of the more technical economic issues. So I, I think uh, Trump for a lot of, of voters, Republican voters, is, is better than anything they've come to expect. And, you, you know, you see in the polls this year that there's, there's a lot of people that, you know, they're, they're more reluctant about Trump this time around, um, but it still feels like the better option to them. Yeah, but his support among Republicans is high. And and one reason, though, that I ask that uh, around this culture war question, when we were starting talking today, you were saying that one of the things that, that your uh, journal is trying to do is downplay some of these culture war issues and, and move the focus onto economics. Um, that's a move I often think about and associate with the, the left, a, a belief that the culture issues are a distraction from what politics is really about, which it should be about these economic material uh, issues. But one reason I think the the observation you make around populist politicians on the right here in America, then also in Europe, and I would, I would say Bolsonaro in, in Latin America is another example, is that maybe they're right about what their base actually wants. I don't believe culture war issues are like some secondary play in politics. I, I think that they, I think people's idea about what their country should be and the way they aspirationally play that idea out um, in, in politics ends up being very real and feeling very, very real to them. So maybe it's not uh, the politicians who are appealing and getting high numbers from their bases by focusing on these issues who are wrong about what politics is about. Maybe it's to some degree you and me. No, I think that's that's right. And when I say that we try to focus on economic issues, my the implication was not that you know, cultural issues don't matter or that people are not sincere in their views about them. My thinking is merely that I think there's actually a lot more common ground on the economic issues. And much like in the 90s, when Republicans and Democrats were having all kinds of fights about cultural issues, but still managed to um, move in the same direction and actually get a lot done on core issues of political economy like trade, financial deregulation, and so on. My hope is that something similar could happen that now, even though people are still very polarized on culture, um, it's still possible to, to move the ball on uh, core economic policy questions. So, so let's talk about one of those. One thing that, that you focus on a lot, that your journal focuses on a lot, is industrial policy. Um, and, and let's just begin with some basic definitions, because people aren't always familiar with the term. What is industrial policy, and, and, and why is it core to your view of what the economy needs? Well, I don't know if this is the official academic uh, definition, but to me, it basically just means uh, the use, uh, the conscious use of state, state power, uh, state um, economic incentives uh, in order to strengthen a country's domestic firms and capacities in strategic sectors or sectors deemed strategic. 
And how do you do that? Is it tax subsidies? Is it R&D? Like, what are the tools of industrial policy? Yeah. So, I mean, tax subsidies and R&D is, is, are, are kind of the American favorites and the classical favorites and, and the things that we have done to some degree, even over the last 30 years. They are no longer adequate, uh, I think, in today's world. And we really, um, you know, should be looking at the successful examples um, from, from Asia, from pl- places like uh, South Korea, Taiwan, where you see a much more conscious use of actually restructuring the incentives around commercial banks, whether it's guaranteed loans um, or other sorts of funding to get money into those industries government funding for investment funds uh, designed specifically to invest in those industries. In Asia, of course, you also have, you know, direct uh, property grants and things like that, um, which is, that would be fairly unprecedented in the U.S. But there's really a wide range of issues um, that have been employed across the world. In Germany, for example, you have things called the Fraunhofer Institutes, uh, which basically seek to to leverage the kind of basic R&D from the universities and get them out into smaller firms throughout the country that, that don't have the resources um, to, say, monitor those developments or implement those technologies in the way that larger firms would have, as well as, you know, all those conventional tax uh, and other things that uh, the U.S. is a little more comfortable doing. Local procurement requirements. I mean, Defense Department, you know, hundred bill, hundreds of billions of dollars of budget. You can uh, make sure you put requirements so that you are you are you know quote buying American. And one of the most positive uh, developments I would say in the last few years is you know Joe Biden now has a whole buy American plan, um, which you know I think incorporates a lot of the more favorable elements of industrial policy and shows that actually some progress uh, can be made on these issues. Yeah, I was going to ask something uh, about that because when I hear the description of industrial policy. The thing that just comes to mind is the Green New Deal, which is just a massive, massive industrial policy plan. If you go back a couple of years, Democrats are more interested in carbon pricing and, and, and market mechanism signals. But now it's moved to something that I would just call straight industrial policy. Um, and as you say, Biden has his big made in America plan. So is the Democratic Party actually the party that has begun adopting this critique and moving it into a governing agenda? Actually, I mean, both are. I mean, yeah, I would say the Green New Deal is industrial policy. Um, right now it exists in a very conceptual form. But, you know, I think using industrial policy to deal with environmental goals is is a very sensible approach. Um, but it's not that, it, you know, actually there's been Republican congressmen taking up this issue, too. So, for example, the recent American Foundries Act dealing with semiconductors, you know, that was co-sponsored by Tom Cotton and a bunch of Republicans along with Chuck Schumer. So if you look behind the headlines, you actually do see a, a fair amount of movement on this. Does Donald Trump for re-election have an industrial policy agenda? Has he picked up any of this in any significant way? You know, as far as I know, Donald, the Donald Trump campaign doesn't really have any specific policy agenda to speak of. But he hasn't expressed any hostility to it. There are certainly parts of the administration that are very friendly to it. Um, it's just uh, as with as with pretty much everything in, in the in the Trump presidency, it's just sort of very chaotic and undefined. Yes, Clan Joe will be back after a short break. If Donald Trump loses in November, what do you think the Republican Party looks like two weeks later? Like if it's a if it's a reasonably big loss, like let's say the polls are basically right and we end up with something like a like a 
six to nine point spread. Yeah, I mean, the truth is that the party's going to be in chaos whether he wins or loses. Um, the 2024 primary begins the next day. There's all kinds of factions. Everything's going to be up for grabs. I suppose the difference is, you know, if he loses by a really big margin, there'll be there'll be much more pressure to increase the distance from from anything to do with Trump. And that might be for good, such as some of the, the chaotic rhetoric, but perhaps also, you know, there, there may be some throwing out the baby with the bathwater and, and it might increase the incentive to go back to kind of Paul Ryan type of republicanism a bit more. Though, again, at this point, given that where the issues of potential common ground lie and where I think the, the dominant problems are, I think that's still unlikely. But my guess is the only difference is, you know, the size of the loss may may encourage, you know, a, a bigger break from Trump than a narrow loss. Your colleague Gladden Pepin had this interesting piece where he broke it into three groups that he thinks are vying for control of the Republican Party. One is those who oppose Trump in 2016 and still in their hearts do not like that he leads a party and they sort of want to regain control of the Republican Party and bring it back to the standard pro-business, more laissez-faire platform of, of recent decades. Number two, those who were initially skeptical about Trump but have rallied around the cause of nationalism. And number three, those who've used the occasion of the Trump presidency to push for, for a new right. How do you assess the strength of the three groups? I was trying to watch a Republican National Convention from, from something like this perspective, and I was actually struck by how many people who are from group number one were in the primetime speaking slots. It was like them and Donald Trump's kids. <laughs> uh, and that um, and that made me uh, reassess where I thought some of the strength actually lies at this point. But I'm curious how you see it. Yeah. Parties are always, you know, they're going to be inherently messy. So, so my guess is whatever emerges will also include a lot of incoherent factions along the way. Um, but basically right now, you know, something like the first faction, which, which for now at least is not actually openly uh, hostile to Trump. It's just they, they don't like to talk about these things. They would rather stick to tax cuts and deregulation and Ronald Reagan. Um, they have the command of, of the, most of the donor funds, um, the large institutions like AEI and Heritage, uh, and, you know, a, a pretty strong grip on the party machinery. On the other hand, the kind of, there's still a lot of popular energy around groups two and three, and some mix of them. Um, Tucker Carlson is the most popular, most important pundit, you know, to the extent there's a kind of younger and online, probably two online faction of the right, you know, they're, they're more in those groups. And a lot of, you know, to the, again, to the extent there is intellectual energy and new ideas, you know, it's not coming from group number one. So I'm not sure where it's, it's going to end up. It's also, you know, again, the, the younger, the younger politicians, the more dynamic ones tend to be in groups two and three. I can't say exactly where that will end up. What I do think is it's capable to make predictions around is the fact that there's another divide and that's between people that sort of have an economic agenda and are capable of thinking about some of these issues in economic terms and those who don't. Again, I'm biased, but my personal view is that most of group number one and most of group number two, which we'll call this kind of the, the purely rhetorical national populist 
types don't really have any real economic policy agenda and don't really have any real coherent thinking about what the U.S. economy or even really U.S. society should look like and what policy agenda you can implement to bring that about. Um, so to the extent that there's some power in that ladder, uh, I think it may take a few election cycles, um, but it'll eventually, uh, I, I hope anyway, gain strength in the party. One, one thing that I see and worry about when I look at, say, Tucker Carlson, and I've known Tucker for, for many years, uh, um, not always pleasantly, is that as he moved into a more questioning space on economics, the actual energy for his show came from moving to a much more, I would call it xenophobic and oftentimes outright racist place on cultural issues. I mean, his show's energy comes from culture war. And then occasionally he uses that energy and spends down some capital to challenge things on, on economics. I think you see this in a bunch of places. I mean, uh, there have been a bunch of ideas out of Hungary and Poland that American affairs has covered positively from the, the pro-family agenda side. But those populist right parties are, are also, again, very, very driven by not a like a like a gentle nationalism, but something with a much, much harder edge. And one, I think, sort of obvious structural reason that happens is simply that if you want to go left on economics, there is a left on economics. And um, Joe Biden remains to Tucker Carlson's left on economics, in my view. And certainly the people who are coming up in the Democratic Party are way to his left on economics. And so the differentiator has to be this demographic fight about whether or not America is going to diversify, what it's going to look like um, as the, the younger generation uh, comes into power, who's going to be let in through our immigration system. And so that there's a, a, an incentive built into the differentiation between the two sides for national populism to either flirt, flirt with or become outrightly racist. And I'm curious because I think you don't want it to go that way how you either see that analysis or how you think about avoiding that um, going forward. Yeah, to me, again, I mean, it really comes down to my fundamental view that you will have a lot of fights on culture, um, but you can still have people going in the same direction on economics, which I think has, has been a pretty standard history. The opposing view to that would be that as you had a left that has become increasingly reliant on billionaire funders and increasingly captured by uh, upper middle class capital light and worker light industries, that it has embraced a cultural uh, liberalism and individualism uh, that, it, that it sort of clothes and, and, and pretends to have a certain historic continuity with um, older forms of leftism uh, that are no longer there. And it now uses sort of accusations of racism to legitimate a pretty pro-elite agenda. Again, I'm not getting into those battles, but I think the important thing is, is to try to make progress on the economics. So let me try to challenge um, the the deeper meta idea about politics that I think you're putting forward here, and and you can tell me if I'm if I'm catching you wrong uh, along the way here. As I understand what you're saying, the key issue in American politics isn't really where we disagree, but the almost hegemonic policy space where we do agree. So there's a New Deal era where Republicans and Democrats are are both Keynesians, as as Richard Nixon famously said. There's a neoliberal era where both Republicans and Democrats want to allow China into the WTO and want to do a certain amount of financial deregulation. And now there is this fight over what this era is going to be, and, and you want it to be a more populist era. So I think I have you right so far that you can tell me if I don't. And 
as I see it, what you what you want to say is like the key thing is what becomes like the new governing assumptions. What what ideas do both parties share? So, for instance, do they both agree on industrial policy, but they simply disagree about what the industrial policy should be? The Democratic Party wants it to be Green New Deal, and the Republican Party wants it to be, I don't know, um, manufacturing and uh, defense, you know, industrial policy, and. I would not see the salient thing in that world as the fact that both sides agree on industrial policy. I would see the difference, like the difference is actually what politics is about, but it's consequential whether or not you go in the direction of trying to reconstruct the entire American economy uh, along decarbonized lines or whether or not you're doing functionally the opposite is, is a very, very profound disagreement that that really, in my view, outweighs the question of industrial versus non-industrial policy. Um, and, and similar on some of these things, you know, even if both sides agree that we should end the carried interest loophole, um, if what they're actually fighting about, because politics organize itself oftentimes around what the two sides fight about, that's where they focus. They spend all their time on on culture issues because that's where they're differentiating. I think that actually could become much more dangerous than you do. I think your theory is that what that the agreement on economics will lead to a prioritization of economic issues. And I actually think it might go the opposite way, that the more the two sides can agree on economics, the less they will actually spend time legislating there because their incentive is to play up the places where they disagree. It's interesting that you, you know, use the word populist and, and it's, you know, it's a very common term now. And, and I understand why people call me a populist. Um, but if anything, my main interests are actually very technocratic. And I, and I think that the, um, the decisive aspect of today's politics is very technocratic stuff that is outside the media that nobody talks about. Um, and which, if we're being honest, is largely driven by corporate lobbies and large donors and things like that. So what are those decisive pieces? Uh, they could be, for example, Section 230, governing the tech companies, or how, how one treats uh, patents and intellectual property in general. Um, various, the various components of industrial policy, like people will talk about the Green New Deal as a big concept. Um, but in practice, if you try to implement this thing, what you're going to have is a lot of really small technical fights with local utility incumbents and dealing with rewriting national regulations and all of that in very technical ways that, that no one's going to want to talk about on the internet or cable TV. The semiconductor stuff, nobody talked about it. Um, and admittedly, you know, it could have gone further and it's only one piece, but that was a big deal that, you know, we just committed uh, tens of billions of dollars to try to rebuild the U.S. Uh, semiconductor manufacturing capacity. So I guess fundamentally, I think that the the media circus, what people are talking about on TV, um, what Trump is saying, all of that, um, it, it's not nothing. It certainly can have very bad consequences. But fundamentally, when it comes down to uh, what decisions are made and what are the actual rules and conditions that will govern the future development of the economy and to some degree, you know, the, the social and cultural incentives as well. Um, the decisive thing there uh, is, is actually going to be uh, technocratic and, frankly, very anti-democratic and anti-populist um, maneuvering. And that's just kind of the inevitable reality of modern society. And interestingly, I'd say, uh, you know, we have published some stuff on this. There was an article we did called um, Toward Technopopulism uh, a couple issues ago. Um, but it's, it's a long-running problem in the history of pretty much all 
political movements in the modern world, you know, from from Lenin's Russia to Roosevelt's New Deal um, to pretty much anything you could think of, which is you have this populist energy and political movement, um, but you also have this this technocracy and the requirements of expertise that are needed to implement any agenda and, and run any sort of complex modern institution like, I don't know, the FCC or whatever. Um, and these two things are always in tension. And the question is, you know, how, how do you balance them and, and kind of make them go in the same direction? Um, but for now, I guess, for, for both my reading of history and my reading of the present moment, uh, I think focusing on the actual technocratic matters uh, are, sort of, are, are going to be the, the most important for now. For, for what it's worth, I have a deep view that if you scratch any populist, um, uh, you end up finding not any populist, but, but certainly a lot of the ideological populist, you end up finding a technocrat pretty quickly. So I, I appreciate that um, as something of a technocrat myself. But if you take my view that uh, politics at the legislative and executive level between those two players will be gridlocked for, for quite a while, it's quite likely or at least you just take that as a, as a premise for this question. Where does power lie? If you could control any agency or regulatory body or institution in a legislatively gridlocked world where the two parties are fighting over things, which ones would you, which ones would you care a lot about controlling? I think today in America, you know, it, it's, it's, the, it's the big parts of the executive branch. Um, agencies like the FCC, the FERC for energy, even things like the SEC, stuff like that can be very important uh, when it comes to rewriting a lot of the uh, investment guidelines for pension funds and, and, and 401ks, uh, which you've already seen some of this year, but uh, which, you know, any kind of major uh, reallocation of capital through economic policy um, almost always requires. Uh, that those would be, I suppose, my ideal agencies to control if, if that were ever an option. But uh, the other part of it, too, is I think we have to be honest at a certain level uh, in this country and, and, and hold our donors a bit more responsible. I think it's, you know, it's kind of accepted that, you know, you could be a Democratic donor, Republican donor, whatever. But, you know, you, at the end of the day, you don't really take consequence, take, take uh, responsibility for what the political consequences of that are. You know, that, well, if, the, if Washington's not working, that's the politician's fault. Um, and I think given the extreme concentration of wealth in this country and the extreme power that a very small number of people have over the allocation of capital, both for commercial purposes, as well as political and, and NGO and nonprofit philanthropy, I think at some level we have to hold the donors responsible for what kind of political culture uh, we get. Talk a little bit about that allocation of capital issue, because it's something that, that you focus on quite a bit in American affairs. And I, I do think the, the issue of how capital is allocated is underplayed in politics. So what levers would you want to pull on to change that? Well, I think one of the big trends we're seeing now in finance is, is a move toward ESG, uh, which is an acronym for Environmental, Social and Governance. And it's, it's basically part of a larger turn away from shareholder primacy to what is often called stakeholder capitalism, which is where companies have to take, take into account the interests of not just shareholders, but employees, local communities where they operate and so on. The fascinating thing, though, is that ESG for right now is, is largely undefined. And for the most part, for the last couple of years, I'd say it has been dominated by largely boutique billionaire causes. Yes, there's an environmental component in there, but it's pretty nebulous and easy to get around. 
Uh, and I think it'll be a very important question over the, over the next few years is, is how ESG actually gets defined. And does it include things like maintaining industrial capacity in, in the United States? Does it include things like uh, worker pay and limits on, say, CEO pay or shareholder value extraction, things like that? And again, the, these debates are just getting started. Um, but uh, even though they, they don't provoke a lot of attention on Twitter, I think they'll be very important. Who do you want to see win the election? You know, I uh, I made the mistake once of uh, giving an endorsement, and I'm not doing it again. <laughs> but even putting aside the question of who you endorse, who do you think it would be? Whose election do you think would be better for your agenda or your ability to make headway with your agenda? Um, I think anyone anyone who is serious about an industrial policy agenda uh, would would probably be you know, someone that I, you know, would be easiest for me to work with. And, you know, in simple terms, I would say with Trump, I think we probably know what we're going to get, which would be kind of another four years of a mostly lame duck presidency with a lot of kind of infighting and as well as partisan controversies, um, probably not a whole lot gets done. Um, and I think even though Biden's been around for 47 years or whatever, um, there's probably a lot more question marks about, you know, which parts of his campaign is he most sincere about what are his priorities, uh, as well as the interesting fact that once Trump is out of the picture, you know, I'm not sure how strong his constituency actually is within the Democratic Party. And there'll be a lot of factions uh, fighting over the direction of that party, too. That, that I think, is certainly going to be true. Um, I think it's a good place to end. So let me ask you always, always a final question here. What are three books you'd recommend to the audience? The first one is by a a uh, frequent American affairs contributor named Dan Bresnitz, and the book is titled Innovation in Real Places. Um, and, you know, most of economics doesn't pay any attention to this really concrete stuff. Uh, even even a lot of business schools don't really do it. Uh, but it's basically just a summary of, I would say, successful industrial policies in countries from South Korea and Taiwan to Israel to Italy um, to some some regional successes in the U.S. as well. It's just a very practical book and a good way to kind of uh, look at these questions, both in terms of success or you know uh, promising policy proposals as well as uh, a very grounded critique of the kind of conventional Silicon Valley VC model that we have employed. Number two, and even though I. I disparage political theory earlier, I will give a political theory book, and that's Bruno Messias's History Has Begun, um, which is a really fascinating look at a lot of these questions around uh, hyper-reality or unreality in U.S. politics. Uh, and, and Messias has this interesting theory that this is actually a new development of, of liberalism and a new kind of freedom where, you know, it's not grounded in institutional neutrality or whatever, but you sort of immerse yourself in this fantasy TV reality, and, but without actually having to go through most of the problems with it. Uh, I don't personally, I personally am more worried about reality uh, than he is, but it's nevertheless a really fascinating theory and a, and a pretty good look at some of the craziness of our times. And the last book I would say is uh, a weird one, The Hall of Uselessness by Simon Lays, uh, which is actually a pseudonym, but um, that's what the book is, is under. And he was a diplomat um, who wrote 
a wide ranging collection of essays uh, from literary criticism to most interestingly for me, kind of thoughts on China from the Maoist era all the way to late 90s, early 2000s. And he not only predict that a lot of, you know, the trade liberalization and stuff would not lead to political liberalization in China, um, but it's worth seeing his observations and the reasons why he thought that sort of grounded in his own personal impressions of Chinese political uh, culture and so on, as well as the issue I mentioned earlier with the, the kind of battle between, um, in this case, Maoist uh, politics and the, the need for technocratic policy. Um, it's really interesting stuff, kind of, uh, kind of been forgotten and ignored, but well worth a look. Julius Crane, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you to Julius Crane for being here. Thank you to all of you for being here. Uh, to Roger Karma for researching, Jeffrey Geld for producing, Ezra Klanches of Vox Media Podcast Production. <laughs>